Murder is defined as the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being by another. However, being charged and convicted of murder isn't always as simple as the definition. With that said, let's talk murder. Welcome to another edition of Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Kisan. For those who may not know, Let's Talk Murder with Diamond Kisan is a crime-based podcast that takes an inside look at the crime from the side of the accused. In each episode, we go beyond the headlines and get up close and personal to the story via the words of the individual charged with the crime. On this episode of Let's Talk Murder, we explore the case of Demetrius Benjamin. Now, typically, you know, I read you something from the headline, the headline I've come across, but this crime in particular, this case dates back to 2009, I want to say, if I'm mistaken. Yes, 2009. Now, being that this goes back to 09, I literally could not find the event. So let me give you the story from what the word around the word was, right? Here we go. Mr. Benjamin was sentenced to 25 years in the alleged killing of a homeless individual who went by the name of Tree. Now, according to the story, Tree confronted Mr. Benjamin in relation to Mr. Benjamin trying to rob his friend, allegedly. Now, Mr. Benjamin, as I said, was tried and convicted of second-degree murder, dangerous act, and was sentenced to 25 years. And with that said, I reached out to Mr. Benjamin to get the story from his side. So you know, as we always do, let's talk about it. So in speaking with Mr. Benjamin, he had this to say. Thank you for taking an interest in my situation. I pray it can benefit the both of us. I hope this allowance brings awareness of the injustice done to someone that may also take interest to help. It was just another day. I actually did what I planned. Spent time with my daughter and baby's mother all day. I left about 11 that night. The incident happened about 45 minutes later as my friend Keon and I was walking back home from Checkers Fast Food Restaurant. I was staying with him and his girl, helping with their bills until I got my apartment voucher from Independent Living, which is assistance for aged out foster care children in school. And we were talking about getting back in baseball by going to play for the Miami-Dade Community College. And Keon was out there going with me to get his GED. So ultimately, get out the streets. In my mind, I was dreaming about success in or through ball. Then, Jamel, who rode up on his bike, looks at me and immediately starts conflict. At the time, seemingly for no reason. Heated words were exchanged. He rode off 20 yards away. He jumps off his bike and tells eyewitness Mr. Singletary Watch my bike. I'm finna go handle these effing ends. About five steps later, 15 feet away, he reached under his shirt at his front waistband. This may sound cliche, but everything happened fast but slow, like time slowed for just a moment. I grabbed the gun in Keon's back waistband, 
because I was slightly behind him and he was froze. I bought the gun over his head and started firing. Even though I knew it was too high to hit Gardner, then I seen something in his hand as he got closer, about 10 feet away. I shot once more, sent him mad, then ran home three blocks away. I couldn't believe what happened and couldn't understand why he came at me like that. But now I have an answer. About four and a half years or so prior to the shooting, I intervened in him hitting a woman and taking property from her. I knew her from selling her drugs. I ran him down. We were fighting one-on-one until my guard brother and our friend with the lady came and we jumped Gardner while she called 911. What happened, a police officer rode by. He ran off, but was arrested and went to prison. About a week after he got out, we ran into each other. I honestly forgot about it. He must have remembered. I don't recall the lady's name, but a look into his last conviction would reveal it. She has even stopped my baby's mother because she remembered my daughter when she found out I was in jail, but I still didn't place it when my baby mother told me. My case ended up airing on A&E's first 48 cut down. My guard brother remembered Gardner, and so did the lady, but I was clueless. The initial episode is significant because it shows the initial portions of the investigations and evidence obtained that has eluded discovery, specifically crime scene information and surveillance footage from Fortress Storage Company that showed Gardner's purposeful approach and him reaching, which was emphasized by detectives with a circle and then later shows a knife in his hand. The evidence was unavailable and unobtainable from the first 48 hours, the state or the police. The hired private investigator ordered the season, which my case aired on, and only part two, as indicated, showed this is evidence that there was a part one, but it was said I was making it up. The state disclosed fraudulent evidence in supposed footage from Fortress. The given evidence itself is probable to its unlikelihood for three reasons. One, it shows nothing of the, of the incident. Relevance is the main aspect of evidence. Two, it does show two-way traffic. You see headlights and brake lights where the incident happened adjacent to a one-way street, and the view is a surveyor street-level view looking down the sidewalk and shows none of the fortress property. Three, the footage has audio, but no gunshots could be heard. My state-paid attorney gets his sole income from the state and wants to continue to be on the wheel to get a check from the state. So he works for the state, and that's exactly what he did, by doing nothing in my case. I gave an intended 
exculpatory statement of justifiable homicide. The only substantive evidence in their case, counsel stated he would file and argue a suppression based on a Miranda violation where during the readings of the Miranda rights, I stated the desire of an attorney but was never given one. The interrogation didn't cease. But he failed to make that argument because of a false declaration of a state that I didn't state during my testimony at the suppression hearing I requested an attorney. Counsel did nothing to present my justifiable homicide theory, which is an offense for the defense. The burden of proof shifts. No investigation into the footage was conducted. They never even went to Fortress. No further inquiry into crime scene reports after the state said they nor the police had them. His strategy was to let me testify to my version of the incident without using character evidence on me or Garner, nor using or fighting for any corroborated evidence, and the state would paint me to have killed an innocent homeless man for no reason. My attorney even made racial remarks about me and alleged victim outright in, in sublimative messages also called me a liar. All of this, on the eve of trial, he switched up on me. The cumulative effect of no investigation being made, missing evidence, no help from the court, and counsel refused to advocate my facts based on how the cards was dealt and being played, I folded my hands and took a plea. With faith, the truth would come out eventually. What could I say to the general public? I doubt this type of foul play may not be an everyday occurrence, but it does happen. And I'm sure I'm not the only case. I know running was a bad decision, and I wasn't the perfect model citizen, but justice is fairness, and it's supposed to be guaranteed. A real look into my case, the evidence, my character, in later findings about will show I don't deserve this, but a case was made and mishandled to obtain a conviction. Justice is about the truth and fairness in its ascertainment. Since being incarcerated, it has been a struggle with emotion and the question of why. The solitude. Having nothing, having the future taken away from me. This has been a test of faith, character, resolve, and strength of heart and mind. I have become stronger in every aspect and view this as an experience knowing God set me down for a reason and for him to rescue me some way. Maybe he has already. My family that feels my incarceration most, my children, their mothers, my sisters, and their children are struggling. Those who would have benefited most from my success if I would have made it on baseball, a strong if, I must add. Still, it wouldn't be them struggling by themselves. Those are the words from Mr. Demetrius, again, currently convicted under the charges of second-degree murder and dangerous acts and sentenced to 
five years. Let's get into it. So I looked into Florida statues, right? So this is coming from the online sunshine. This is a 2021 edition. Now, based on the justifiable use of force, statue 776.012, subsection 2, it reads as follows. A person is justified in using or threatening to use deadly force if he or she reasonably believes that using or threatening to use such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another or to be to prevent the imminent commission of a forcible felony. A person who uses or threatens to use deadly force in accordance with this subsection does not have a duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground if the person using or threatening to use deadly force is not engaged in a criminal activity and is in a place where he or she has a right to be. Now get this. They are justified in using or threatening the use of deadly force if he or she reasonably believes that using or threatening to use such force is necessary to prevent imminent death. Now, according to what Mr. Benjamin told us, the other individual had a knife, and Mr. Benjamin at first didn't know exactly what it was because when it was taken out of their pants, he couldn't, couldn't quite tell, right? So at that point, you have to ask yourself, would a person reasonably believe that they are now in imminent danger? For me, I'm going to say yes. If you go into your pants and pull something out, and we are involved in a heated exchange of words, I'm going to naturally think you're coming to harm me. Now, with that, the using or threatening to use such force is necessary to prevent the imminent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another, or to prevent the imminent commission of a forcible felony. Now, understand this. Now, I feel that I'm justified because the individual was threatening me with what I believe to be a weapon. Now, I'm going to, you know, furthermore feel justified because I'm protecting myself and the person I'm with. So, here we go with that gray area because you have to understand who deems to the degree you evaluate this, to the degree you say, is this necessary? Is this forcible to prevent the imminent commission? See, now that's the thing. Now, Mr. Benjamin said that he took a plea. And if you heard the words that he used, he took a plea because he felt his back was against the wall, in essence. He felt like his attorney was not arguing his case at all. He felt like there was no one in his corner and in essence, at that moment, it was him against the world. The burden of proof, as we all know from judicial proceedings, the burden of proof lies on the state. And in this instance, though the evidence wasn't strong, though it was only circumstantial, if Mr. Benjamin's attorney, in fact, was not providing a defense of a magnitude that would combat the circumstantial evidence, then Mr. Benjamin as the defendant on trial for the crime in question, has to 
asking tougher questions. How do I play this? Do you gamble and leave it up to the jury? Or do you take a plea feeling that if you leave it up to the jury, it will be more time or worse off than taking the plea? I think as we go through episodes in Let's Talk About It with Diana Kusan, we understand that judicial proceedings are something that really leave a lot of room for interpretation. We're talking state by state, jurisdiction by jurisdiction, municipality to municipality, and definitely when it comes to trials, jury by jury. It's room for interpretation. It's the gray area being gray. And it's me a matter of who's on trial. I do feel that there are sometimes there's some prejudice that comes into play. So here you have Mr. Benjamin on trial for allegedly killing a homeless man, right? The picture is painted as if it is random and it's a retaliation to something. But here we find out from Mr. Benjamin that years later, after being told by some people like, hey, don't you remember him? Hey, you remember so-and-so? That there's more to the story than just that argument that took place and the alleged incident in itself. It dates back some years. Now you wonder, was there a grudge held against Mr. Benjamin and this was the form of retaliation for him protecting the female four and a half years prior? You have to say to yourself, what is going on? Then you have to say, what kind of evidence did you have? Because here you have Mr. Benjamin. You have, I'm sure, the other individual who was there. You have the individual who was, unfortunately, um, killed. You have to look at it from a perspective of, based on this evidence, what took place? And then if there's camera footage that all of a sudden got lost, see now, any attorney, any attorney would definitely be ready to fight because you cannot fully prosecute the defendant if part of the evidence is missing. How can we conclude a mathematical equation without all of the components of the equation? Sorry, boo, not possible. And it's the same thing with judicial proceeding. How can we sit here and prosecute Mr. Benjamin when half of the evidence is missing? That means the accused does not get to confront the evidence. They get to confront a portion of it? Really? So the state can argue the evidence that they allegedly seen and that miraculously just doesn't exist no more, got lost, got misplaced, whatever the case may be, and it's okay. And then Mr. Benjamin sits here feeling that his attorney is not arguing anything that needs to be argued, nor is he providing an affirmative defense that would help his case. So I ask you, based on what Mr. Benjamin has expressed to us, what would you do? If you felt like your attorney did not have your best interest at heart, you have a state-paid attorney, and they're not arguing anything that would work to the defense of your case, would you take a plea? Or would you take your chances with the jury? Let's talk about it. I invite you to reach out on social media. Let me know how you feel about this. On Twitter, at Let's Talk Murder. 
Instagram and Facebook at LTMWTK. Again, that's Twitter at Let's Talk Murder, Instagram and Facebook at LTMWDK. I'm Diamond Kisan, and we've just talked murder. Until next time, stay safe and never be afraid to talk murder. This is a Diamond Kisan production.